Hey everyone, welcome to episode 24 of the True Crime Couple podcast. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So right at the top of the show, we want to thank our our sponsor today, HelloFresh. And I just want to point out that I made a little bit of a mistake at the beginning of the episode, last episode. I said last episode was episode 24. It was 23. Yeah, I pointed that out to Kay. I fudged up. Yeah. I'm sorry, guys. I got a little ahead of myself. So... Of course, we want to thank everyone for, we got a lot of Patreon donations last week. We got another $12, which is super exciting. Awesome. And we just want to thank everyone who is newly donating to us or is continuing to donate to us. We appreciate everything you're doing beyond belief. It's so amazing. And we love the feedback. We just put up on the Patreon page a update to the Rebecca's a How case. So there's some new interesting developments that took place um, just last week. So we updated that, and we're going to have a new Patreon episode up next weekend. So we're bringing a lot of stuff to you guys because we're just so appreciative of everything you're doing for us. And just if you don't remember, that was the Rebecca Zahau episode 17, part one and two. Yes, one and and dose, I think you called it. I did call it dose. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> and we also want to thank everyone for... Their comments on iTunes and liking us, giving us five stars. It's such a big help. And even just reaching out to us on social media, it's its really encouraging and it helps us keep going even when sometimes things get hard to juggle all at once. So we And really, we love to hear from you guys too. We love to hear from you guys. Yeah. You know, we love it. It's great. So if you are interested in donating to our Patreon page, you could donate at patreon.com slash true crime couple. Okay, so let's get into things. 6.6 million people in the United States will be victims of stalking this year. Of that number, 76% are women. Of those women, most are separated from their partners or are divorced. 11% of all victims have been stalked for over five years. Three-fourths of all victims know their stalker and on average have called police due to incidents of stalking an average of seven times before action is taken against the aggressor. One-eighth of those who have the ability to obtain a restraining order cannot for financial reasons, as the average cost to complete the process is $2,187. If a restraining order is issued, a necessary evil occurs. The stalker is made aware of every location the victim will be, where they work, where they live, and if they move, the stalker gets updated. Or if they change jobs, the stalker gets updated. Of the 6.6 .6 million victims in the United States, only one-third of them saw any justice, whether it be restraining orders or their aggressors serving jail time. So I know that was a whole bunch of information and facts I just threw out you guys. But it's important to know that today, in 2018, it's a very flawed system dealing with stalking cases. However, we are leaps and bounds further than we were in 1980. And the case we will be talking about today took place in late May of 1980, when the stalking laws in California fell under a miscellaneous penal code that was last updated in 1872. Those laws would not be updated again until 1991, and then again in 2008. Our story's backdrop is the horrors of stalking, 
and we will go over what our victim went through and the effect it had on her life. However, we will also talk about her stalker, how he tormented her before her death, and how that just wasn't enough. This man, who was still unknown to this day, tormented the victim's family for four years after their daughter was murdered. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Okay, so before we get into our story, just want to give a little disclaimer. This, like many other episodes, John knows absolutely nothing about. <laughs> yeah, nothing. He was just shocked by that introduction. You like that? I, you know what? It's pretty impressive. Honestly, and guys, whether or not you like it or not, oh, I hope you like it, but I love learning these things with you. Yeah. There are times where I have literally nothing to say and I can't even add to the show because I'm just an absolute fucking shock. <laughs> Um, so sometimes I have no idea, but I just love listening to her say it. So it's like, in a way, I'm with you guys learning it with you. Well, so. a lot of listeners reached yeah. out and said that they liked the episodes where you didn't know what was happening. Right. So like you learned along with them. Oh, this is one of them. So this is one of them. <laughs> I just wanted to give that disclaimer. So if John's being quiet, it's because he's, his jaw is probably wide I'm open. I'm just soaking it all in, guys. Because this is a pretty interesting case. All right. So 32-year-old Dorothy Jane Scott was staying at her aunt's house in Stanton, California. Stanton is a small town in Southern California, in close proximity to Anaheim. Dorothy has a four-year-old son named Sean. Nothing is mentioned regarding any previous relationship she had. Like, there's no details about her relationship with Sean's father, but we know that in this situation, she was not in any relationship, nor did she have any violent past relationships. So there's no red flags here right. of like there's a crazy like ex-boyfriend past, right, right, involved. That would come and do the right. Gotcha. By all accounts, Dorothy appeared to be living a normal life. She was very religious, making it to church at least once a week, and praying daily with her son. Good Christian woman. Yes. Others knew that Dorothy was not dating anyone. <laughs> How'd you know she was a Christian? I don't know. I guess, guess? Right. I guess you're right. I really can't. Oh, it's 2018. I can't really yeah, do that come anymore. Come on, John. You're right. You can't assume. Things. You're so right. Apologize. Others knew that Dorothy was not dating anyone and that she preferred a night in with her son than a night out with friends or on a date. One friend described her life as being dull as a phone book, which is a bad friend award. It's yeah, really. I mean, and you know, what's wrong with a phone book? Well, it's very informative. It's, not, it's informative, not exciting. I guess so. Um, if that was the case, Dorothy didn't seem to mind. Her brother once stated that she exemplified the word give. She would just give, 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 no matter what it cost her. But I don't think Dorothy is just a religious woman who never left her home to go out. You know, like as as many people described her. I think that she was a little bit more complex and interesting than that. Well, if you think about it, just like anybody else in in the world, we only see somebody for like eight hours, you know, typically. We don't know what the other person does. We don't know what they do with the rest of the time of the day. I guess it's also kind of weird, too, because in doing my research on this case, it refer they refer to Dorothy as being a wonderful person, compassionate, loving, caring. Like her brother said, she was a giver. She was religious. But whenever someone like says something like weird about a victim of a crime, you're always like, what? What? Of course. You know, but I mean, I guess it's good to be truthful 
and to hear the truth about things. Like, how many times we watch Dateline and we're like, really, everyone's a good person? Like, someone had to have been a jerk every once in a while. Well, that you never see them, you never hear them say on Dateline, yeah, or like, like she, ID, uh, yeah, she sucked. Or, yeah. Uh, you know, he I was mean, an asshole. Like, it you happens. Never hear, we know yeah, people. Come on now. We know people are jerks sometimes, but. Absolutely. So maybe her life was boring, but she seemed to like that her life was boring. But one of the things that I thought added some complexity to not just Dorothy, but also the Scott family in general, is her job. Dorothy worked as a secretary for the Swingers Psych Shop in Anaheim. The owner of that shop also owned the adjoining shop called Custom John's. It was like a head shop. The two stores were geared towards the areas like hippie culture. Um, They were filled with like colorful bongs, blacklight rooms, psychedelic posters, um, provided an atmosphere for those who enjoyed that lifestyle to just kind of like hang out. Not that Dorothy was the face of the business. She was the secretary that worked in the back room. She answered phone calls, kept the books, things like that. But I think that the establishment is an interesting choice for the single mother to continue to work at. It speaks to the fact that maybe her life wasn't as boring as it was made out to be. You know what I mean? Right. Now, the reason that Dorothy worked there is because her father actually previously owned the Swingers psych shop. Which is interesting, like really religious family, well, conservative, and they're just owning. Like, I think that's pretty cool of them. Right. And eventually, uh, Dorothy's father, whose name is Jacob Scott, he is going to sell his business to the person that owns Custom John's next door. The new owner of the shop agreed to keep Dorothy on staff, and her father would return to be the handyman of like both, both shops. Okay. Like he would work and do like maintenance stuff. Dorothy was loved by her co-workers. She was described as being dependable, kind-hearted, and a compassionate person. While she was working, Dorothy left Sean in the care of her parents that lived nearby. But by May of 1980, Dorothy's life was anything but ordinary anymore. At this point, Dorothy had been tortured for months. She had been receiving phone calls at her workplace and a few times at home, from a stalker. What those at the time called her secret admirer would call her and he would either be very complimentary, say he was in love with her, call her beautiful, while at other times he was angry and menacing and demanding. So he was very back and forth with her. The man who was calling had a voice that seemed vaguely familiar to her, but she just couldn't place it. At first, the call seemed to be from a man who was trying to get a date with Dorothy. He told her she was beautiful and he would love to be the man in her life, but she never got his name. By the accounts of her co-workers, Dorothy did not give in to the initial advances. She was a woman who dated very rarely, and quickly things with the caller took a nosedive. He told her that he enjoyed watching her and was able to describe what she had been wearing previous days and the things that she had done that day. Creepy. Yeah. The man seemed to know her whole schedule. The man seemed to go back and forth with his feelings. Some days he would call and tell her, like I said before, like she was beautiful, but then the bad part got kind of worse, and he began to threaten physical harm against her. One call in particular, he said, Okay, now you're going to come my way, 
And when I get you alone, I will cut you up into bits so no one will ever find you. At that moment, you know what I'm doing? What? I'm unplugging the phone line that goes into my house. No, but he's calling her <laughs> He's calling her at work. You can't unplug that phone. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm just like... Come on, I mean, if this, if this was happening at my house, though, I would totally unplug the phone. It's also 1980, too, so it's a little bit harder to... There's no caller ID. There's no... There's nothing like that. So I mean, it's no, a, you're right. a, a caller can remain anonymous. Of course they can. Also, your name is like public record in the phone book. I remember like in phone books, you could just it's like... still... Our, it, yeah. No, I know it is, but I'm saying like back then even, it was like... Uh, well, yeah, it was it's very, yeah, definitely easy to just look someone yeah. up in the phone book. So Vera Scott, Dorothy's mother, claimed that one time the man even contacted her at her house. He told her that she should go outside because he had something for her. And when she did, she found a single dead rose on the windshield of her car. So, okay, now it's escalating. Like, this is yeah. crazy. It's escalating pretty quickly. So not only does this person know where know she her routine, works, knows her routine, where she works, knows and also she knows where she lives. Yeah. That's fucking terrifying. Yeah. Also, she has a child. Right. Which makes it even that much, you know, scarier. scarier. Hell yeah. When Dorothy explained her situation to others, she described feeling lost. There was nothing the police could do, and she would feel silly going to them, because she didn't even know who the man was or his phone number. This is 1980, nine years before the murder of beloved actress Rebecca Schaefer, who was murdered by an obsessed fan that had been stalking her for three years. That case would bring the dangers of stalking to the forefront of people's minds in the United States, and it would cause legislation to change in 1991. However, in Dorothy's case, we're talking about her only having a miscellaneous penal code from 1872 protecting her. I would love to know what that penal code was from 1800s. Like <laughs> It really just states that, um, obviously, there was not the technology that they had in 1980, but that you cannot be threatening to a person. Okay, so... Like, like it was like just kind of thrown li- in. It right, wasn't right. like... It wasn't considered anything it wasn't there's no protection in the no. quote-unquote bill like oh, no. or like this like an act to protect right it was just basically a rule thrown in there they didn't know where to even place it saying that you can't threaten somebody which is common knowledge i mean you right, don't go they, around but, telling yeah. people you know i'm gonna kill you correct so it was really hard to ever prosecute anyone for behavior like that unbelievable She felt even if police officers did believe her and were on her side, there was really nothing that they could do. Like, there was nothing to protect her with. Dorothy decided to take actions into her own hands. She had taken up karate so that she could defend herself. She also considered obtaining a handgun so she would feel safer walking to her vehicle at night after she got off work. It was obvious that this man knew where she worked and exactly when she was working. However, she decided against getting a gun because she feared that Sean might get a hold of it and harm himself. This brings us to May 28, 1980. Dorothy Scott dropped her son at her parents' house and headed off to work for an employee meeting. Now, this is a meeting that's taking place after hours. As the meeting went on, many present were growing concerned about one of their colleagues, a man by the name of Conrad Brostrand. He looked like he wasn't feeling well. As time passed, the man could not stop fidgeting. His constant movements brought attention to his arm, 
that had a red streak that seemed to be getting darker by the minute. After much convincing, Dorothy convinced Conrad that he needed to go to the hospital. Another employee, Pam Head, decided that she would go with them as well. The three set off in Dorothy's 1973 white Toyota station wagon. Before the trio made their way to the hospital, they stopped at Dorothy's parents' house. She just wanted to update them that there had been a change in her plans, that she wouldn't be coming home right after the staff meeting, that she had to take Conrad to the hospital. So she would be a little bit later picking up Sean because they were watching him. Her mother, while they were there, made a comment that if she was going to be out later, that she should change to a heavier scarf. She only had on a light one. So it was at her mother's house that she swapped her black scarf for a heavier red one. Then they made their way to the University of California, Irvine Medical Center in Orange, California. I do find it a little strange. Like, I get there's no phones, but, like, she could have called them from the hospital. I think it's a little weird that, like, they're rushing guy to an emergency room, but they stop it. It could have been, like, on the way, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Maybe it was just, like, a direct way, like, they were passing like, the mom's house no matter hurry what. Hurry up, you need to go to the emergency room, but I'm going to change my scarf. It's a little strange. Yeah. It's a little weird, I find. But we also, I mean, look. I know, let's put it in the context. We, we have to. Yeah. yeah. So once Conrad was brought into the emergency room at around 9 p.m., the doctors determined that he was suffering from an infection that was the result of a black widow spider bite. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that is pretty bad. Pretty serious. Not time to stop and swap scarves. You didn't know how important scarves are? <laughs> I'm not a scarf person. Me neither. The two women waited patiently at the hospital while Conrad was being treated. Pam will later tell police that they read magazines and engaged in small talk. No serious conversations were had and no discussion of Dorothy's stalker took place. The two women waited anxiously for approximately two hours for the treatment to be completed. Eventually, Conrad emerged from the back rooms of the hospital emergency room and stated that once he got what he needed from the hospital's pharmacy, they could be on their way. He was also thanking the two women for accompanying him. He was also trying to figure out where this spider bite could have come from or when he even came in contact with it. Because I would be nervous about going back home. Right? You don't know oh, where yeah, you're you bit by the spider. spider. Yeah. Dorothy volunteered to go get her car and pull it around front while Pam and Conrad waited in line for his medication. The two agreed that this would be a good idea. All of them were very eager to leave the hospital. Because at this point, it was already 11 p.m. It's pretty late. After the two got the prescription, they walked outside to the front of the hospital where they were expecting to see Dorothy's car waiting for them. But it wasn't there. So they decided to wait. At first, the two co-workers were upset with Dorothy. What was taking her so long? They just wanted to go home. But then they became concerned. Had something happened to her? The two knew about the problems that she was having with the mysterious caller. Finally, they saw Dorothy's car approaching. The car, however, was not casually driving towards them. It was speeding. The car had its high beams on, and Conrad and Pam could not see who was inside the car. All they could do was wave their arms to try and get the car to stop, or at least be recognized. Instead of heading right for them, the car took a sharp right turn and exited the parking lot. The two ran after the car, but could not catch up. They watched as the car drove further down the street, 
and its headlights completely turned off. That's how Dorothy Scott disappeared. Hey guys, we're going to take a break from the show to talk about today's sponsor with you, HelloFresh. HelloFresh is a meal kit delivery service that shops, plans, and delivers step-by-step recipes and pre-measured ingredients so you can just cook, eat, and enjoy. Each box is made up of fresh, responsibly obtained ingredients from carefully selected farms and high-rated trusted sources. You can look forward to your HelloFresh delivery knowing dinner just got there that much easier. I find myself at work thinking about what great HelloFresh meal I'm going to make when I get home, and it's hard to wait until dinner time to start cooking. It's actually something that I want to do when I get home from work, is cook my HelloFresh meal. All the ingredients come pre-measured in handy, labeled meal kits, so you know which ingredients go with which recipe. HelloFresh is also perfect for my busy schedule. With the podcast, teaching, graduate school, I don't have time to spend hours in the kitchen cooking and cleaning up. But with HelloFresh, I spend less time meal planning and grocery shopping each week. The cleanup is also quick and effortless. The account is also so easy to manage with the ability to choose your delivery date to match your ever-changing schedule and pause deliveries for when you're on vacation. Last night, I made chicken pineapple quesadillas, and they were amazing. And tonight, I'm going to make Cajun spiced pulled pork, and we can't wait. We have never been disappointed with our dinners. HelloFresh has an exciting offer for true crime couple listeners. For $30 off your first week of HelloFresh, visit HelloFresh.com and enter promo code TCC30. Again, for $30 off your first week of HelloFresh, visit HelloFresh.com and enter promo code TCC30. Okay, back to the show. Conrad and Pam did not know what to do. What Dorothy just did didn't make any sense. They tried to rationalize her behavior. Maybe she had suddenly remembered something that she had forgotten. But what could that have been at this time of night? Why hadn't she stopped just to let them know? Prior to the event, she had taken them to stop at her parents' house to tell them she wouldn't be home until later because she had to take Conrad to the hospital. So why couldn't she have just simply taken them on another detour like she had done previously? So it wasn't like it was uncommon for her to say, okay, guys, jump in. I got to run here. Because that's what she did on the way to the no, hospital. She, she was booking. They, that car was booking it out of there like it was Grand Theft Auto. Right. So the only thing that they could think of was that something must have come up with her son. But this is the day before cell phones. So how would she have even known something came up with her son? Right. No call had come into the hospital. So Conrad and Pam wait a few hours. Which is a long time. I feel like I would call someone right away. But okay. I feel like there was more patience. I feel, well, I feel, I feel like, like we're too like. Well, well, maybe we. Need, we I think all it's need. May. I think in today's day and age, we all need that like instant, instant gratification. Yeah. Um, you know, back then they needed like they what's needed going to on. Wait. I need to find out right now. <laughs> they needed to wait. Right. So Conrad and Pam called Dorothy's parents' house and asked if maybe she had come to pick up Sean. That would explain everything. However, Jacob and Vera Scott told the two that they had not seen their daughter all evening. 
The two then decided to notify the UCI police, who told them that there was no cause for immediate concern. However, they did make the right call and notify the Orange Police Station, who now were on the lookout for the car in question. Hours later, Dorothy's car was found about 10 miles away from the hospital, burning on fire in a Santa Ana alleyway. Now, was it like like crashed and then went on no, like flames or someone burning, like lit it up? someone lit it up in an alleyway. Oh, oh, oh boy. Inside, there were no traces of Dorothy Scott. So the disappearance of Dorothy Scott was now finally being taken seriously. They had advised Dorothy's parents to keep quiet about the investigation and not talk to the media of any kind. The details of the disappearance needed to be kept quiet. This way they could determine the validity of anyone who was coming forward. Jacob and Vera Scott agreed to this. They just wanted their daughter back. However, their side of the agreement was shaken a week after the investigation began. The Scots received a phone call at their home. Vera had answered the phone. Hello, she said. And on the other side of the line, a male voice answered her back. He said, are you related to Dorothy Scott? Yes, Vera replied. And then he simply said, I've got her. And he hung up the phone. This had to be Dorothy's tormentor. The Scots wanted to involve the media right away. Maybe they could help them find out who this maniac was that had been harassing their daughter previously and now had seemingly taken her. After another week had passed and nothing new had developed with their daughter's case, Jacob Scott decided to reach out to the Santa Ana Register, which is a newspaper. The paper ran a short story about the disappearance of Dorothy. In Southern California, in the early 1980s, a runaway woman, or someone who just went missing, was a common occurrence, and didn't spark much media attention. But the Scott family knew that it was not in Dorothy's nature to do something like this, and that call that they received confirmed it. That's insane. Isn't that crazy? And if I was the father, I would fuck the newspaper. I'm, I'm like, renting a blimp. I'm renting, like, a, a helicopter, a plane to get the word out. Like, I want everybody to yeah. see it. You know what I mean? Like, it's it, so It must sad, be hard to, to keep quiet, but... Yeah, how, how can you? Unfortunately, with disappearances, I mean, it's a little different because Dorothy is older. She's a woman. But with disappearances of any kind, there's bad sides to both parts. So if you keep quiet, it's not brought to the media's attention. And not million, millions of people aren't looking for them. But then if you do involve the media, now you get all of these like crackpots coming in, like telling you, like you get all these false sightings and it, that gets emotional too. Yeah, cool. well, because it brings you to like, you know, it gets you, your expecta- expectations high. Right. And then you find out that it's absolutely nothing and, and it's, it's devastating. people who want attention. So, yes. Yeah, so it's just a roller coaster of emotions when, you know, people come out with um, updates or so-called updates, you know? Yeah. Sightings. or Sightings. Yeah. But I just feel like there is no right or wrong answer of what to do. It is like kind of like the John Walsh theory that having the media know the name of the person who's missing or the victim 
will get the constant attention and will most likely get the person found a little bit quicker. So I think that that's where Jacob Scott was going with this. was like, I want everyone possible looking for my daughter. Right. So. Rightfully so. Right. And, and the newspaper did run an article about Dorothy. But then something weird's going to happen again. The editor of the Santa Ana Register, Pat Riley, would soon to discover that this was not a typical Southern California disappearance case. The day the paper ran the story about the small-town girl with the mysterious caller, they too received a phone call. I killed her, the male caller told Riley. I killed Dorothy Scott. She was my love. I caught her cheating with another man. She decided to have someone else. I killed her. The caller proved that it was him who took Dorothy by giving details that nobody else would know. He confirmed that on that breezy night, Dorothy was wearing a red scarf. He also knew about Conrad's spider bite. He even knew that it was a black widow. His final claim was a bit strange. He said that Dorothy Scott had phoned him to tell him she was at the UCI Medical Center. Riley immediately contacted police to let them know that he had been contacted by someone he believed to be the killer. or Well, the abductor at this point. Sorry. The police are going to call in Pam Head again and question her about the time the two had spent together in the waiting room. Head explained that what the man was saying was not possible. Dorothy had never left the site of Pam, so there wasn't time for her to make a phone call. The only time of Dorothy's that Pam could not account for was after she left them to pull her car around front. Was the caller delusional, or was he not involved at all, and just making this up? It was a tough call to make. Therefore, the police went through the usual suspects. The first person they questioned was the biological father of Sean. Maybe he was upset that Dorothy had taken his son to Southern California to live with her family after the breakup. However, the man had an airtight alibi. He was at home in Missouri with several other witnesses the night of the kidnapping. Everyone at the psych shop was also questioned. Twice. The police concluded that it most likely was not someone who was a regular at the shop, because they would have never seen Dorothy. She worked in the back of the store. But I wonder if they looked into like a delivery person option. Because she would have definitely had contact with delivery people. Not just delivery people, but... Um, like business contacts. Well, business contacts for like supplies. Maybe she was like one of the people that like arranged to have... No, she definitely did. Yeah, yeah. right. That's so what like I'm a, saying. Like yeah. someone on the business end. Right, right, right. So either it was like someone that she dealt yeah. with and that's why she couldn't place the voice. She, she said... She thought it was familiar, but she couldn't really place the voice to a face. I think that she couldn't place the voice because he was trying to, like, crudely hide his voice. Right. So I think if he would have talked normal, she probably could have placed it. Okay. But he was doing something weird with his voice to kind of hide who he was. Right. Local sex offenders and everyone within Dorothy's circle was questioned, but none of them looked good for the crime. Losing hope, the Scots contacted two psychics that they thought could help. The police even consulted a psychic in the investigation, but no new leads were found. The only thing that didn't come to a halt was the phone ringing. The phone rang every day on Wednesday at the Scott household for four years. The caller would call Vera while she was home alone, while Jacob was at work during the day. The caller would either ask, is Dorothy there, reassert that he killed her, 
or would just say, I've got her. For four years, every week. That's crazy. Yeah. That is torment. Yeah. The level of obsession to do this for four years is crazy. I mean, yeah, it is. Considering that if she is dead, right? We don't know at this point if she's dead or not. Right. But the police do say, because they did consult the FBI on this case, that without a doubt, if you were to meet this person, you would know it was them. Because of the level of obsession and delusions that they have. This person was clearly under the impression that he was in a relationship with Dorothy that she knew nothing about. Right. So at this point, he most likely has either a shrine in his house to her, or if he was ever even questioned about her, the signs that he would show would be so obvious that it was him. Right, and it would, it would be easy to profile him. Correct, or e- yeah. easy for even the common person to be like, oh my god, this guy. Right. It's him. So to try and catch him, the police would plant a recorder in the Scots household. They had the caller's voice preserved on tape. No one's ever, they haven't released the voice. The voice was gruff and plainly disguised, but not recognized by anyone. The investigators could never track the location of the caller because he wouldn't stay in the line long enough, even despite desperate efforts from Vera to get him to do so. However, one day in April of 1984, this is four years after her disappearance, almost to the, to the, like, a month before the four-year anniversary of it, Jacob had decided to take off from work, and it was him who answered the phone. After that day, the caller was never heard from again. Jacob speculated that because he did not play into the caller, that maybe he assumed that the line was changed. Like, you know what I mean? Like it wasn't It wasn't, it wasn't them. them. Right. Like maybe the Scots changed their number, they moved or something. Because usually he was so used to Vera picking up the phone for four years right. that it was somebody different. Now, was this every Wednesday? Every Wednesday. So one would have to think that there has to be something with Wednesday. Like, yeah. what's the importance of I know what you're saying. Wednesday? There is an importance as to why he picked that day. Right. And the time. Was it the same time every Wednesday? It didn't specify. Okay. I, I wonder if it has to do with Jacob's schedule of the... Of just Vera being home, maybe he knew the schedule. Right, and maybe when he picked up the phone, it... It surprised him, correct. so he thought, oh, maybe it's changed. Yeah. Three and a half months after the telephone call stopped, a worker at a construction site just off of the Santa Ana Canyon Road in Anaheim stopped when he happened upon a pile of skeletal remains. The remains were that of a dog. However, while the crew was working on removing the bones... They saw more bones hidden by soil. So like there was just a little bit of soil over this new bunch of bones. Those were human bones. Oh my god. So someone had buried human bones and then a dog on top. A pelvis, an arm, two thighs, and a skull were found along with a turquoise ring. And a watch that had stopped ticking at 12.30 a.m., on May 29th, 1980. Wow. Yeah. Jaw is dropped. 
it's not a huge, it's not the full remains. So it seems like he made right on his threat in the beginning when he said, I'll cut you into bits and hide you where no one will find you. Right. It's possible that this person's shrine could be part of a remains in this shrine. You're right. I didn't even think of that. You know what I mean? If that is, if someone is this obsessed, Mm -hmm. even after her death, he's probably holding on to pieces of her, which is scary as fuck. And this is four years after, so. Investigators stated that without a doubt, the remains had to have been there for at least two years. And they asserted this because on top of the dog remains, like... The remains that were exposed to the air were charred. And two years prior, there was a brush fire in the area. And that fire happened in 1982. So if that, if on top of this grave, you could say, was charred, that means it had to have been there in 1982. Before the fire. Before the fire. Right. So they know at least this had been there since 1982. They don't know... If they still don't know if she was killed that night or a year later, two years later, do you know what I'm saying? Right, I see what you're saying. Yeah, they have no. They have idea no idea if she was killed in 1980, when she was buried, at some point, or if she was kept alive for two years and buried at some point between 80 to 82. Correct. Before the brush fire. Now we don't know. Just because the watch has stopped doesn't mean she was necessarily killed at that time. She could have broken the watch in the the struggle when he got her at the hospital. Do you know True. what I'm saying? True. So we don't necessarily know that that's when she died, just because that's when her watch stopped. Um, when I was reading about possible like theories about the case, it was sad that someone mentioned, "What if he had kept her captive, and the dog was his dog, or like a dog that he had gotten her in the house?" Do you know what I'm saying? They were True. killed at the same time. It's very possible. It it is very possible because the whole dog thing is very strange. It is strange. I think it was a good way to hide it. I think maybe that's what it was. Yeah. You know, to get you know keep people from like digging further. Right. Um, Like oh, those here are bones. Oh, they're just dog bones. Right. And you pass it. You know, you just pass over it. You know what I mean? You're like, I don't want to just. Right. It's a family's dog, probably. Right. And dig it up. It's possible that she was kept. You know, with him. We don't know. We don't know. Right. Because, obviously, no cause of death was able to be determined by the bones that were present. So it wasn't like like we saw with the Jameson case where there was, like, a hole in the skull or there was nothing. Nothing. The bones were completely intact. Yeah. Vera Scott identified the ring as belonging to her daughter. The Scott family had finally found their daughter. A week later, the bones were positively identified as that of Dorothy's through dental records. After the announcement of the discovery of Dorothy's bones, the Scots received two more phone calls. Are you kidding me? Yeah. The all-too-familiar voice asked, Is Dorothy home? Get the fuck out of here. Are you serious? Isn't that crazy? It was the same voice, too. So it wasn't just like some pranker. Right. Asking her if she's home because they found the bones. It's like it gives you chills. It's so creepy. Oh, my God. Both Jacob and Vera Scott died without seeing justice for their daughter. Her killer and their caller 
were never identified. Jacob died in 1994 at 69 years old on Dorothy's birthday. Adorable and sad. I know, my God. Vera died in 2002. Sean Scott, the son of Dorothy, stated that his grandparents were amazing people who positively impacted his life, especially his grandfather, who was an amazing man and an even better role model. The man that we are talking about that committed this crime is most definitely a stalker, one of the most dangerous that you that could ever exist. Stalking and even stalkers who threaten violence very rarely actually Commit that? Commit it. And even more rare is murder. So this man definitely had something else going on. So I wanted to look up like different types of stalking to see like, can we categorize this guy? Can this tell us something about his psyche or something? So in psychology today, a professor of criminology, Dr. Ronald M. Holmes, he proposed a categorization of stalkers. And it seems that Dorothy's stalker can fall into two of six categories the first of which would be domestic. This is described as the stalking of a former spouse or paramour and is the most prevalent type of stalking. It can also develop in the workplace. And and that's what I thought maybe it could have been because like maybe she knew this person because of a work environment. Right, which I could I can agree with that. Right, cuz that's where the phone calls are happening. It's where right. the at least it's where the tracking of the location began. Yes. Had to have been. Yeah. Um, Or um, he could have fallen into the love-scorned stalker, who is an acquaintance, co-worker, neighbor, or someone the victim knows who who desires an intimate relationship with the victim, but is rebuffed. Yeah, that means he's getting Mm -hmm. thrown into the the friend zone. She probably wants no part of it, being in a relationship with him. Now, there's another subcategory of the love-scorned stalker. Uh, it's, it's called erotomania, and it's a delusional disorder where the stalker thinks that the person they are stalking is in a relationship with them and is in love with them. Right. I think this categorizes him. And that's, it's, he's highly delusional. <laughs> right. Because this explains why the caller stated in his call to the Santa Ana newspaper, the register, that they were in a relationship, but Dorothy was cheating and she had even called him. That shows that he really truly believed that there was a relationship and that maybe her going to the hospital with Conrad, he saw as her being unfaithful to him. Okay. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. So then when she, when he saw Dorothy slip away, he was so... Like, he never acted on anything. But her going to the hospital with Conrad enraged him. I see what you're saying. That when she went to go get the car, he went after her. Like, right. it was an impulse thing. Like, it wasn't something that was planned. It was that he was so pissed that she was there for another man. Right. I, I understand. Do you know what I'm saying? Oh, absolutely, yeah. So that I thought was interesting and would be an explanation to what took place. However, the killer is also interesting in the fact that they kept in contact with the family for years. Yes, that's odd. I've never even heard of that Very strange. There are cases of killers keeping in contact with police, even for years, but but that's with police. Police, not the actual family. Or the media. Right. I've heard of media police, but not the family. And it's more of like a... 
I'm too good. They can't catch me kind of thing. Not a torment thing. Like he was punishing this family. Oh, absolutely. That That was his intention. That's really rare, highly unusual, and I think that talks to, like the FBI had commented to the police, that this man and his obsession would make it very evident when they met him who he was. Right. So that shows me that the police probably never even came in contact with this man. Maybe not the police, but do you think it's possible that the reason why uh, he was able to just like so nonchalantly call the family up and talk to them was because maybe he actually really knew them. Yeah. Well, that's... And, ga- and that's what give him, gave him the gall to do it because he knew them. There is a theory that people put out there that maybe Jacob Scott was wrong, that maybe the man didn't stop calling because he thought the number was changed. Maybe he only called Vera because he had worked with jacob in the past at the swinger shop or at custom john's absolutely so it then could be, it, that the scared him when he yes. answered because he's like he 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 will identify me correct and and that would be the connection t- uh to the family right okay that's what i'm thinking because that's also what everyone said they couldn't place the voice but it was familiar right but he the father would be jacob would be the connection to the rest of the family that's right. what gave him the you know the balls to do it. Correct. So, um, the only known suspect that we know about, because friends of Dorothy's back from Missouri did disclose this to people, including her son, Sean, that there was a suspect in the investigation. Um, I'm going to be careful with what we say because we don't ever want to put out there that somebody did this. I, I want to make so clear before we say anything that this man was looked at by police and the police said there was not enough to charge him with anything or even look at him further. But the only known suspect that had been actually named is this man, Mike Butler, who has since passed away. Mike Butler was a brother of one of the employees at the Swinger Psych Shop. Mike was stated to have been an unstable individual who was living in the Santiago Mountains. Hmm just 25 miles away from where Dorothy lived and worked. There are rumors of him being involved in cult-like activity around the Black Star Canyon area, which is known as like a haunted site, which is visited by paranormal investigators. Oh, nice. Yeah. It sounds cool. Sounds cool. However. Terrifying. (laughs) Yeah, terrifyingly cool. I could not confirm the history of any cult-like activity except for rumors. So... I don't know how true that is, and I don't want to say that it is right, just to it, sound cool yeah, no. because I couldn't verify any of that. Law enforcement did like Butler as a suspect at the time, but there was a lack of evidence. There was nothing. They couldn't go any further with it. But because the case is subject to so much speculation within the true crime community, there's been many people who looked into Mike Butler and got out a lot of information about him. Um... Of the information they found that ties him most to the crime would be the fact that he himself was very religious. So that could kind of talk to a fascination with a woman who was similar interest to him. Mm-hmm. Um, his sister worked at the swinger shop. So that could explain knowing a little bit more about Dorothy, finding out about her. Okay. Or even maybe coming in contact with her. Holiday parties, um, his sister talking about work. 
But what was most interesting um, is the fact that he was employed at a mechanic shop in Orange, California. And in 1980, there was two mechanic shops in Orange, California. And one of them was right next to the Swinger's psych shop. Was he working at that one? We don't know which one he was working at. Well, let's see. That would be... But it's a 50-50 chance we got there. I mean, if you're looking at it this way, you already presented two out of three mm-hmm. um, links. And then to go further into the whole thing with the church, you also have to remember... Okay. She could have met this dude at church. Could have met the guy at church, number one. And so number I... two and number two, it also um it also kind of ties a uh a way into like saying her um oh my god, her schedule. Mm-hmm. You know, this is something that she did all the time. She was always at church. Right. She you know had I mean? a very regimented schedule. That's what I'm saying. So yeah. um Which is something this... you shouldn't do. You should always have an erotic schedule. Right. So... I take three different ways to work all the time. Yeah, I and I just go whichever way I'm feeling that time. Yes. Okay, you're really... Um, Strange. You're really... Uh, I know, I'm weird. <laughs> <sighs> anyway. But yes, it does It does uh, give some sort of connection to, you know, like her day, what her day would consist of. Right. And so, so what you're trying to say is that these three facts we know about Mike Butler. Right. Two of them tie her him to her a possibility possibly tie him to her on two things that she does all the time go to work go to church now if you told me that he worked at that mechanical shop next to where she worked yeah that then i could say now we have three connections that are are all possibilities uh yeah i would lean towards it but there like you said there's no other evidence to suggest that he had any involvement correct so uh anything tying him to the crime is purely speculative Speculatory? No. You said it wrong, too. Whatever. Yeah, anything tying him to the crime is purely speculative. Anything tying him to the crime is purely speculative. And he was a suspect, but he was cleared. And I just think that the only thing we can really truly say about this man was that he was hell-bent on punishing not only Dorothy, but her family, because he had heavy delusions that the two were in a relationship. Yes, and he want, and in many ways, you think that he wants them to relive the moment of her kidnapping and disappearance and, and I think death. He and he wants to relive it too. Correct, and that's the reason for the phone calls. Right, because talking to Vera on the phone, causing her distress, probably allows him to relive that one time. However long it was, he got to spend with her. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, gross. In the end, a 32-year-old mother lost her life to her stalker. I do not know if it's any consolation to the Scott family, but California now has the strictest laws against stalking, and Dorothy's case was cited in many congressional hearings. Dorothy's son, Sean, can only remember a few things about his mother. What he knows about her, he only learns from the memories of those who were closest to her. I don't think that this is one that's ever going to be solved. Um, Most involved have passed away. And the only way I believe it would be is if someone eventually came forward in saying that they know something more or that they were the ones even involved. But some people are always going to speculate about who it could be. Obviously, a lot of people's go-to is Mike Butler. I think it's easy to go to, even though 
if those three facts are completely true, and if they are, those are very damning things. They are. But once again, though, there there isn't evidence to support that he worked there, worked there, or that he was religious, or that he was in a cult, or the, I mean, the only thing that is definitely completely a fact is that his sister worked with Dorothy. Right, but none of the facts prove that he kidnapped, stalked, kidnapped, and killed. Correct. Um, I think it's just yeah. easy to pick him only because. He's the only person named in right. the investigation. And I always say this all the time, just like every almost every episode, we usually we t- we typically look at the uh, at the the suspect that's just easy to pick out. Right. Like so, you have a, f- a little bit of evidence that could go his uh, his or her way, and we mm-hmm. just kind of do it for the fact that it's easy. Right. But just because it looks like it could be doesn't necessarily mean it is. You know, it just it, I just don't believe that we should just look at the surface and just yeah. be like, yep, that's, because, that's him. Because here's something that's weird. This is a, a fact that sometimes gets overlooked. But could there have been more than one person involved? Because it's very strange that Dorothy's car was found 10 miles away from the hospital burning, right? So how did he leave the car and get away with her? Unless there was another vehicle with another person in it to drive Right, it. he can't just hitchhike with a person that he's abducting. Or he had his own His car. vehicle was parked 10 miles away. But then that says that that was planned. How could he have planned that she was going to be at the hospital, then walk 10 miles to the hospital? Right. You know what's crazy? I'm going to tell you something. And tell I know me. this is... I, Oh, I guess. Did you say aliens? No. Oh my god. I'm just kidding. Uh, Well, I know, like, (laughs) I know. Kay said that you know, like, we're not saying anybody. You know, I don't want to soil anybody's name. But how crazy would this case be if the other person involved is the one that had the spider bite to lure her to the hospital to Uh, get her alone? Okay, so it's been discussed also that in the 1980s, um, people said. People say that you go to the hospital for a spider bite, really like spider bite in my air quotes that I'm making that you can't see. It means that you were injecting drugs and you got like an infection from it. Okay. But we do have record that it was a, he was arrested. That, he that's was fine. sent into the hospital for a spider right, bite. Right, that, that is totally fine. So, 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 so. Conrad's involved in it by getting a spider, but he didn't want to go to the hospital. Dorothy does, convinced him. Does it matter? Yes, like, because he would say, "Take me to the hospital." If that was the plan. No, but it would make someone less. It would make someone feel more comfortable. I think she was already comfortable doing it because she was familiar with him because she worked with him. I know, but what I'm saying is, he wa- didn't want to go. I get it. I guess I'm just saying that. And then Pam was there. He would have said, "No, no, no." Only one person. Like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, I understand. I guess I'm sure there's going to be somebody that's going to listen and say I it's will a possibility. Say the spider that my theory... bite. Yeah, it's a possibility because the spider bite is freaking weird and out of left field. Like, I mean, could you imagine? It's a little strange. I mean, let's just say the coincidence is outrageous. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm, we're, we like to be factual. We like to like you know, but could you imagine if? That's he the had craziest involvement. Ruse I've ever heard. But think about it. Could you imagine that? And like, 
imagine that you know to get her alone to get to bring the car around because don't worry it's only going to take a few more hours or a little bit longer i gotta no, get my medicine she suggested that bringing the car around. yes because she is a good person trying to do the right, right thing what if that was like this whole plan to have this go down I, ju- I just think that I don't think it was Conrad. I don't think it was I Pam. It, I don't think it was Conrad. But Only because they checked into them so hard. Yeah, I'm just saying. Could you imagine if we're going with the theory that right. two people were involved? Let's say that would be the ultimate. Like I don't plan. I don't understand, and it gets I guess because the circumstances surrounding the case are so weird. The phone calls, the spider bite, the phone calls afterwards, the dog bones. There's a lot of details that are very strange and cannot be explained. But how did a man attack a woman, drive away with her, drive 10 miles away from the hospital, right. light the car on fire, and get away? Like, there's no homes where the car was on fire. There was no place to go to. Things were being built up. So he didn't just walk away casually with this woman. No. Unless he had a gun. And he was forcing her to walk to or a her. knife. Yeah. Um, but it's very strange, the circumstances surrounding what happened after he abducted her. Did he kill her right away? Because where the car was set on fire to where the bones were found was another 20 miles away. So there's no way that he walked 20 miles with her, then cut her body into pieces, buried her, and then put a dog on top of it. The only way that all of this would be possible... Oh, wait. Sorry. I just want to add this oh, one fact. Sure. Go ahead. It was determined that the dog and her were buried at the same time. Okay, but the so dog... So it wasn't like she was buried, and then he came later and put the dog on top. Okay. Do you know what I'm saying? Like yeah, It was yes. at the same time. I just wanted to clarify that. Okay, go ahead. I was just going to say, with all things considered now, the only way someone can do this is if they have the the means to do so. Mm Kind of like in a few episodes back, if the person has, um, I'm just saying, throwing this out, there's something like a farm with lots of land and the ability to kind of come and go as they please that's also a job do they have a job where they're required to be at places at certain times do you have the ability to just move as you please you know what i'm trying to say no i know what you're saying like all things have got to be considered here was he a person that kind of just was a loner didn't really have a real job yeah you know like those are things that you have to consider well he definitely had every wednesday available exactly Uh, to make these phone calls what job are you going to go to and make fucking phone calls and be like well let's just sneak away on your lunch hour and they had pay phones what i'm saying is he had to have a lot of free time yeah i know what you're saying very good case though i'm i'm intrigued i this one is i don't think ever going to be solved only because i think there's so many different directions that you could go so like usually in cases there's that one thing that's really weird. In this case, there's ten things that are super weird. They're just odd, and they're not, and they're out of nowhere. It's so bizarre. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we would love love to hear what you guys think about this case or anything you want to add. You can comment on Instagram or on Twitter. We'd love to hear what you guys have to say. And again, we want to thank our sponsor, HelloFresh, and all of our Patreon supporters. 
And if you're interested in being a Patreon supporter, you can visit patreon.com slash truecrimecouple. And you can please add us on Instagram and Twitter, truecrimecouple as well. All right. Thanks, guys. Bye, guys.